0: I said diet, you idiot. An introduction to the celebrity rider. We've all heard stories of outrageous and unreasonable dressing room requests from high-profile performers or D-list divas, and they're often satirized protests and refusals to go on stage because they simply can't with just anything. The subsequent placating and massaging of ego and image, mainly for fear of an earful or unrest among ticket holders. Occasionally exaggerated, but sadly not by much, there's more truth than fooey to these funny yet formal and not at all revealing demands made by the entertainment industry's biggest prima donnas. Thaddeus shakes his head in agreement, then sips chilled ginger ale from a personalized beer stein with an elaborate tea. Enter the Celebrity Rider. Presented in two forms, hospitality or technical, writers are nothing more than a list of requests or conditions, most of the time contractual, stipulated by a performer as part of their performance agreement. Whether it's a desire for a particular discontinued candy with the exclusion of a certain flavor bearing the taste of a popular pink stomach antacid, or a request that every stagehand drop their H's and develop a lisp for the full run of a show, the rider has become an essential element of showbiz lore. Yes, sometimes absurd, and in the case of redneck comedian Bud Harvey, who requested Chinese Roman candles filled with opioid powder smuggled out the front door of a retail pharmacy across the street, entirely legal, but very time consuming. The rider is considered, in our contemporary culture, a celebrity's right, if not rite of passage. A signifier that you've shot straight into the stratosphere of superstardom, and people will lick your boots. Literally, as long as you put it in writing. Like when thespian Viktor Sokolov performed at the haunted Lumiere Theater and asked that the ghost of famous burlesque dancer, Josie St. Clair, not be permitted on stage during the show, and that she wait for the Russian performer in his dressing room with a bottle of cognac and horrifying images from his future. Or the time music megastar Misty K requested a lavish spread of Swedish meatballs served by male models in a manner similar to body sushi. It's an entertainment practice that predates the inception of theater, some 2,500 years ago. Since humankind has sought an emotional response through music, fancy costumes, and dropped lines, performers have made special and soul-suckingly specific requests especially when of the opinion of an unpaid intern or a grip that made eye contact at the worst possible moment. And all for a seemingly delicate display of the talent's genius, which includes an ability to lip sync while twerking. For centuries before the Common Era, shamans of the American Indians performed drug-induced rituals to summon the spirit world. Their ceremonies consisted of altered states of consciousness and were so exacting the spiritual leaders required certain comforts. Before one of the Hopewell's most regarded shamans, Shunta, entered a hallucinogenic trance, he requested two dozen ceramic vessels of teepee temperature water adorned with pleasing bird designs, soothing chants with an accompaniment of no less than six rattles, and fur from what the benevolent spirits told the practitioner was chinchilla, to rub against his face when the sensations kicked in real good. The classic philosopher and comedy playwright of ancient Greece, Theros, whose marble busts expressed the writer's stoic hilarity to a T, requested the presence of 12 prepubescent boys before the performance of his old comedy yarn, Symposium Under the Stars and a Shelter for Two, as their fresh faces inspired the novel thinker. Additionally, noted Athenian speaker, Pythes, praised for his law court performances, specifically the vagrancy trial of a known beggar, which bore witness to a 4,000-member jury brought to tears during the rhetorician's sympathetic portrayal of the accused, minding his own business, was adamant in his request for a fresh set of sandals before each ruling. In 15th century Mexico, the Aztec high priest, Aculin, refused to sacrifice 90,000 souls to the god of war because his altar was painted the wrong shade of turquoise. During the Renaissance, method actor Giles Dudley, a member of the Knights Lads Playing Company, had his assistant deliver a set of requirements to the Tams Playhouse on the South Bank before his performance with a rival acting troupe, The Boys in Frocks Live. Dudley insisted that the audience receive fresh produce to throw and that his private dressing room was stocked with two pottage options and provided with prostitutes free of the plague. But not all of it, as the Bard of Bordellos liked his women a little dirty, and sometimes with a penis. Dudley's writer for his stand-in performance of Tis Shame the Lady Lost Her Head, insisted that the theater's in-house dead cart stop by his dressing room first to extract the body of his predecessor. During the run of Printing Press What Have You Done For Me Lately, the lauded thespian requested a selection of poetry from Lord Wright and Mary Catherine Weber. He instructed that the works be overlaid with a film of sheep's fat to keep his fingers from getting dirty, and presented with a garlic rosemary sauce for dipping. That great Baroque composer, Franz Saxebel, enchanted the music halls of Western Europe with his tinkly and twangy delights on the harpsichord. Famous for his three piano sonata, Trueling Pianos in C Major, Abel was an eccentric figure, even by German standards. In his youth while playing for the royal court of Prince Nicholas in Oldenburg, the virtuoso required his scene room lavished with crystal mirrors and a matching chandelier, a nightly case of imported Copenhagen Wienenwachs for his mustache, the title of entertainment master, and a miniature harpsichord made of marble to cool down after the show. allowing himself to appear thicker by comparison when played with his schwanz for the courtesans. In the time of neoclassical theater, Parisian actress Henriette Marquet dazzled audiences with her grace and brilliance. In 1730, she played the witty and flirtatious mistress of Boucher's masked buffoon, brought to life by Carlo Molino in the translated The Court That Got Around. Performed at the grand, iconic comedy theater, the Royal House of Follies, Marquette's writer requested commissioned works from that enlightened painter and balloon innovator, Jean-Simon Paget, depicting the actress in the midst of her pre-show routine. For something to nosh between the base applications of her 23 layers of white powder, the burgundy-born actress wanted smoked trout and honey cake, a block of iced cheese on a 100-centimeter silver platter, One hard-boiled egg presented in a fanned-out fashion, two barrels of wine and a long drinking straw, a cauldron of hare stew, an assortment box of snails, and two chocolate fountains, one for fruit, one for pleasure. During the American Revolution, patriots distracted British soldiers by putting on extravagant outdoor plays in town squares. Militias ensnared the British with the droll, dry-witted works of cobbler playwright Nathaniel Taswell and would flank the unsuspecting redcoats at the height of the show's hilarity, a tactic brought up and frowned upon during the peace negotiations in Paris. By the end of the war, the Continental Army's premier entertainer, Major Samuel Pitt of Massachusetts, had nearly 5,000 captures to his name. A regimented man, Pitt's wartime rider demanded precision. Five pounds of scrapple with a side of crispies. Sliced half-inch bread made from one-and-a-half-inch bread. A variety of seasonal jellies. Delaware honey. Three jars of mystery maple syrup. A pot of southern grits with squirrel. Nine turkey pot pies. A sack of possum jerky. Steamed cod with sherry. Six New England lobster tails. Four cases of applejack. Two cases of Chianti, because he liked the wicker bottles three milk jugs of coffee, and a box of tea to enter the mind of the enemy, as well as a brass spittoon so as to not be corrupted by the vile leaves. Chaim Gilfin, a celebrated face of New York Yiddish theater, known for his sardonically brilliant Jewish barber sketch in the Zuntz Brothers' famous review, grew up the son of a Russian-born kosher hot dog vendor in Brooklyn. Chaim would hide in the food cart and pass his father's steamed beef francs with a set of tongs, which he also used to collect payment. A bit steeped in nostalgia and brought to the stage of the Gollum, a Yiddish vaudeville house during Gilfin's early career. In 1919, when the Zuns brothers moved to the Boris Eisner Theater on 2nd Avenue, Gilfin's technical writer ordered the construction of the theater's ceiling extended to accommodate his barber chair with an adjustable height of 15 feet. Additionally, he requested a series of wooden nesting ladders of increasing humor. For his private dressing room, a large serving bowl of chopped liver with rye toast and salt-free water crackers, two boned herrings, one pickled, one straight up, a tray of lox, see-through thin, bagels from Fritz Bagels and a tub of cream cheese, a pot of borscht with a large wooden spoon, a dozen knish, veal schnitzel and every complimentary packet of saccharin in Manhattan. In addition to food and creature comforts, performance riders are notorious for their inclusion of a personal assistant, a gopher to task with the most trivial yet paramount requests imaginable. During times of homesickness, 1950s rock and roll sensation Bruce Beverly asked that his assistant wear blue jeans cut off at the knee, no shoes, suspenders, straw hat, and speak in a southern draw with a blade of grass in their mouth. That, and be in constant awe of modern appliances. Furthermore, they were to remain starry-eyed and be ready at a moment's notice to impersonate the down-home Alabama boy's famous performance from the Wilbur Wilde Show, using a broom handle as a microphone while also sweeping his dressing room. In Beverly's later career, On his final Japanese tour, he requested a team of 20 assistants to recreate scenes from his films, usually while en route to the stadium, sitting on the toilet with the door cracked open to allow for comments, or during the coked-out idols' legendary post-show orgies. Beverly's Rider never failed to mention his usual staples, a drum of crackling peanut butter and 30 bags of pretzels, 20 of the old style, 6 of the rods, and 4 of the little sticks a platter of cured deli meats, 10 gumball machines, and 50 cases of collar starch. The colorful and lewd stylings of comedian Herman Weathers pushed the boundaries of stand-up comedy. His riders, however, were surprisingly tame. When performing at the iconic San Francisco Jazz Theater, The Bell Court, Weathers's rider asked for several bottles of water in a single pop, two packs of chewing gum, fresh towels, and a noose suspended from the ceiling. Neurotic comedian turned U.S. Senator Sam Green requested caramel candies when he appeared on the Dave Perry Show in 1961, in addition to a small pool of jello for he and the female guest to wrestle. The gravelly-voiced Madam of Blue Donna Dillman demanded four cartons of Copperfield cigarettes and a TV for the fights in 1968 when she performed as a regular on the Friday night variety show Breakup. Additionally, the writer submitted to the studio arrived with the comedian's marriage certificate attached, with her name removed and a note that read, Looking to unload a ham? Interested party, sign here. In 1972, the aging legend of the 1950s lounge scene, Mickey Leslie, known throughout Las Vegas casinos as a gruff, short-tempered, and increasingly intolerant singer, presented the staff of the Flying Flamingo's majestic room with a rider so Leslie, they framed it to hang in the hotel lobby. It noted that the old salt and pepper songbird would remain sloshed at all times and that microphones were optional. The rider went on to specify that for Leslie, the locations of the club's designated restrooms were open to interpretation. The birth of American excess in the 1980s gave rise to the entertainment industry's more ostentatious riders, the kind we've all come to know and love. Like when hairband Cleopatra asked for those favorite dino-shaped gummies, gelatinosaurs, and insisted that their filling be replaced with gelatin NyQuil. Or when sex symbol and pop icon Anastasia on her 1986 British Invasion tour requested a motorcade of double-decker limousines decorated with black fishnets white lace, and half-naked football hooligans. Heavy metal hair band Ethanol, known for their explicit lyrics on high school, Catholicism, and employee break rooms, were notorious for messing with showrunners by including obnoxiously detailed and random requests, which occasionally arrived in a foreign language. During the band's 1989 summer tour, their rider was presented at length using interwoven dead languages, forcing venues to hire on-site linguists and professors of ancient syntax. One of their writers requested recipes that used only prime numbers in the measurements, and off-brand snacks without vowels. Another writer, highlighted from a hymnal, words, letters, in succession, requested a six-foot-tall pyramid of cheeseburgers, a trash can filled with pink yogurt raisins, and someone to die for their sins, preferably non-union. In our current millennium, With present-day technologies and extravagances, riders have risen to a level of grandeur and self-indulgence previously considered inconceivable. In 2006, the rider of international superstar Rachel Allen stated that the musician-actress, or actress-musician, depending on the latest review, must travel with a convoy of private trains, which proved both a logistical and logical nightmare. The queen of bright color insisted that the decor of each train represent a different decade, the 20s, 40s, 60s, and something in the future. Furthermore, the crew's clothes and facial hair had to represent the appropriate period. Additionally, they were ordered to take six weeks of voice and diction classes, payment of which they themselves were responsible for through an affordable installment plan. In 2008, on her worldwide tour following the success of her Twinkle album, Alan, who at the time was taking part in a physical zen cleansing, refused to enter any of the venues under her own power, or with the aid of motorized or electric vehicles, and insisted on being carried. What's more, she requested two personal feeders, someone to place the food in her mouth, and someone to work her jaw and massage her throat. Hip-hop icon Professor Doogie, a.k.a. Professor Slim, a.k.a. The Protector, aka Doug's, aka House of Doug, demanded a 100-person entourage, 12 bottles of Monre Cognac, four bottles of Japanese whiskey, six cases of champagne, and all his awards with cups polished and sanitized to drink out of. Additionally, his rider requested a bag of peppermints, a straight razor shave, and a certified PhD from Hampton in the field of being the voice of a generation. In 2012, the teenage pop idol, Kenley Sweets, demanded a fleet of yachts with helicopters and standby pilots, a buffet of caviar to hurl at smaller boats, a squadron of 50 drones with high-def cameras and adjustable LEDs, 50 jumbo eggs with 50 parachutes, for something else, a pair of every video game console made in the last 20 years, in case he throws one through the TV, and 15 high-def TVs. The high school heartthrob also required every concert hall, stadium, and amphitheater be accessible by water. In the event the booking was landlocked, the organizers were forced to dig a canal. Kenley's now public and heavily shared and scrutinized writer also stated that no shirts were to be supplied for or forced upon the musical prodigy. Moreover, it communicated that if Kenley rode his skateboard, everyone was required to watch. And most importantly, if he made a mistake, his supplied entourage of 30 was instructed to chastise themselves and allow the faint-nippled singer to say, I usually land that, it's just because you're watching. To conclude, Thaddeus takes another sip from his beer stein. It seems the celebrity rider is not only a representation of an artist's personal taste, but also a reflection of our culture at a given time. More than trends, comforts, and technologies of the day, it provides a window into ourselves as a society. An assessment of how we view, not just entertainers and the significance they have on our lives, but stardom in general. That glimmer of something special, something better, the best experience life has to offer. And that includes drugs and alcohol, the constant pressure to perform, the continuous travel and unwavering commitments, the time away from loved ones, the exhaustion, the stress of staying fit well into your 70s, the struggle to remain relevant, the isolation and crippling bouts of depression, headache, the heartache, the quality of your life diminished to a product, the goddamn role, the helplessness and torment, the suicidal tendencies, insanity, the fucking edge. Hell, take away the fame, we've all got a little star power in us. Still, we're a ways away from writing our own riders. Thankfully though, the other destructive aspects of our society have paved the way for similar attention, like on-demand ice cream sandwiches, and fake celebrity status, the universe's even-handed way of rewarding you just for being you, independent of pedigree or willingness to work. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday, written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg, with an introduction by Nicole Kalasic, and artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scoville. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at tecasualfriday.com or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.